Welcome to Mind Matters News. Uh, this is Mike Egner, uh, and I have with me um, Dr. Uh, Angus Manoj, uh, who is the editor of a brand new book that is a wonderful book called Minding the Brain, Models of Mind, Information, and, and Empirical Science. It's the best book on the mind-brain relationship that I've ever read. I actually read it for pleasure, which which <laughs> which, which may sound strange, but it's a fascinating book. Um, and uh, Dr. Manoj is the chair of the philosophy department at Concordia University, uh, has many books and uh, scholarly articles to his credit. So, uh, Angus, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mike. So, uh, in this uh, segment, um, I, I, we, we might want to talk about um, the, the most popular dualistic theories of the relationship between the mind and the brain, which would include Cartesian dualism and Thomistic dualism. Um, could you tell, tell us a little bit about those perspectives? So the Cartesian dualist wants to say that mind and the body are substances of a fundamentally different kind. So as Descartes develops it, um, the mind is this uh, immaterial substance that has no extension or location in space. And on the other hand, anything uh, material does, of course, have an extension and location in space. And one of the reasons for his view is that in introspection, it would seem that the uh, experiences and activities of the mind cannot be understood as separable parts of the mind. So that is when you have uh, an experience of a sunset and perhaps you hear cranes flying by and you smell uh, a barbecue wafting down the breeze it, it seems that they all refer to uh, one and the same subject, and so that those experiences cannot be separated. And in general, he thinks that you can't separate a thought from a thinker in the way that you can separate part of somebody's body or of their brain um, from their physical uh, body. So that his test seems to be this, that if it's physical, um, you can locate it and you can divide it up into parts, but the mind, it seems, is fundamentally um, simple. That's what leads him to think that they are fundamentally different kinds of substance. So that's the sort of the Cartesian uh, view. The, the other uh, main alternative to that that is... Um, already begins in Aristotle and is further developed by uh, Aquinas, is to say, no, what the, the person is, is really one substance. We're a certain uh, kind of being, a human being, which combines a rational soul and also the matter that makes up that the human being. And we should understand then the rational soul not as a, uh, an immaterial substance, but rather as the form of uh, a human being, so that, that we are basically composite um, in individuals. And uh, of course, then there seem to be some obvious advantages um, to this view. It, it doesn't seem as if the same kind of uh, mind-body problem arises for this view as does for the uh, Cartesian view, although that may be, may be argued in the end, but that certainly seems to be the case. And it's interesting that as it's developed, the uh, Aristotelian Thomistic view um, sort of draws a boundary between those aspects of the mind which are 
heavily dependent on the physical body and those that are more independent. And so that it will it will say that, well, of course, when you're dealing with sensation, that, that depends on the, the physical apparatus of the sense organs and, uh, and things of that kind. However, when you move up to abstract thought and free will, it seems that you've reached a point that is uh, independent of the uh, physical organism to a, to a high, high degree. Yes, yes. And I, I must admit that the, um, my experience uh, in neurosurgery and with neuroscience um, really led me to the Thomistic view because it, 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 the Thomistic view dovetails so nicely with, with what we see uh, in neuroscience. But, um, but I mean, there certainly is a lot to say for the Cartesian view, and the, the Cartesian view is enormously more plausible than, for example, the, uh, the materialist way of looking at things. Um, I see two big problems with the Cartesian view, um, uh, well, three perhaps. The first big problem is um, that I think Cartesian metaphysics is very much a step backward from hylomorphic metaphysics. From, uh, from looking at, at, at the world as matter and form. Uh, Aristotle's way of looking at the world, I think, is a profound, beautiful way of, of, of understanding nature. And um, Descartes' way of simply separating mental substances, the race cogitans, from physical substances, race extensa, and describing physical substances being essentially just things that are extended in space. Is is a real step backwards in terms of metaphysics. It's a pretty, I think, pretty crude, primitive metaphysics that doesn't really explain much. So I, I, I don't like Cartesian metaphysics. So I, I don't think the mind is understood very clearly in a in a metaphysical system that's that deeply flawed. Um, the other problem with Cartesian metaphysics uh, is, I think, the or with Cartesian un, un, understanding of, of the mind brain is the interaction problem, which is not as intractable as the materialists may claim. That is, that it's certainly true that things can interact that don't share s substantial properties, but they interact by formal causation rather than by material or efficient causation. And uh, so, yes, I think the mind and brain could interact if they were separate substances by virtue of formal causation. But the problem is that if you're invoking formal causation, you're invoking an Aristotelian hylomorphic way of understanding the world. So why not just jettison the Cartesian way and just accept hylomorphism? So I think the interaction problem is fatal to Cartesianism, not because it's not solvable, but because it's only solvable by embracing a different metaphysical perspective than Cartesianism. The third problem with um, Cartesianism is that I believe because I think it's basically a metaphysical error, um, it has led to some pretty terrible errors as the centuries have gone by. If you understand um, a, a, a human being as a composite of an immaterial substance, the mind, and a material substance, the body, and you are of the opinion that immaterial substances don't exist, then you can just jettison the mind completely and take an, an entirely materialistic view. And that's basically what modern neuroscience has done. It's, it's just said, well, you know, modern neuroscientists are sort of closet Cartesians. Uh, they, they, they just accept race extensa and they deny race cogitans. 
And uh, so I think Descartes kind of set us up for this modern materialistic um, clown show that we uh, that that we experience nowadays. Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly true that one thing that I find problematic about uh, Descartes, despite brilliant defenders of his view, like Richard Swinburne, is that it moved away from the understanding that you see in Aristotle and earlier thinkers that the soul isn't just there to explain consciousness. It's also there to explain life, what it means, right. what it means right. to be alive. And so you had those uh, several levels of the soul, the nutritive soul, the sensitive soul, and then the rational uh, soul. And uh, I, I think that the soul is also necessary to explain the unity of the organism. This is, by the way, what, one of my criticisms of animalism that says that people are just human animals and that that can be a physicalist view. The problem is that the unity of the organism can only be explained if you have some sort of non-material principle because we uh, now know that there are vast exchanges of the particular bits of matter in our body and in our brain uh, during uh, our lifetime, and yet we think that the same person persists. So it seems as if you need to have some kind of organizing principle that makes you still be you despite the fact that you've lots, lost lots of bits of matter and acquired lots of other bits of matter. So I think that certainly is an issue. I, I, I find Descartes myself um, most plausible in his account of the, uh, the unity um, of consciousness. I think there he is helpful, but I agree with you that the danger with his metaphysics is that you end up simply with conscious beings, so God and uh, uh, human beings, and then the rest is turned into a machine. Descartes' view is that even the, the human body is just a machine and everything in the world is a machine. And you know, I tell my students, there's a danger here that, that Descartes sets us up for a kind of a deistic view because everything in the world carries on mechanically by itself and the human body is actually essentially an organic robot. And it, it's not surprising that eventually you're going to have thinkers uh, like, you know, modern thinkers who say, well, perhaps it can all manage just by itself and they get rid of the immaterial altogether. Whereas if it's baked into what it means to be a living organism in the first place and it organizes our, our life and our reason in a more holistic way, then um, it's going to be a lot more difficult to get rid of it. Yes, yes. I, yeah, it, it's funny that, that you, you mentioned that the, the, the strength of the Cartesian view is, is that it explains in a very natural way the unity of the soul. And I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, 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 that's, that's the one thing in the Thomistic view that has always made me a little bit uncomfortable, is that um, understanding the rational soul of a human being, which is a composite of immaterial and material powers, leaves you as a composite. But we all know that we're not composites. I mean, I'm me. I know there, there, there's a unity to me that's that's not material and immaterial powers. It's just me. And how does it? So it always seemed to me that the Thomistic view had to strain a little bit. You know that we we call the human soul a spiritual soul, and I think that's kind of the solution to the problem that we have a special soul that's spiritual. 
but Descartes maybe explained that in a more, in a more natural way as as a separate substance. Um, of course, Saint Thomas would say that we have um, a subsistent soul, that is a soul that is capable of existence independently of matter, and that confers on us uh, eternal life. Uh, but yeah, I can see where Descartes did offer a, a, a more compelling uh, account for the unity of the soul. Yeah, and, and that's kind of an interesting thing that, you know, Josh Ferris and some others, you know, investigate in their chapters uh, in the book. And, you know, there's this other issue, too, of what are we to make of the uh, so-called evidential uh, near-death experiences where it seems as if people, after being resuscitated, are, are able to report things that they had some sort of conscious experience of, but at a time where there was no measurable brain activity, and that they can't be dismissed as um, confabulations of the waking brain because they can be independently verified as, as true. So such as being able to recall the um, exact serial number of a medical machine on top of the machine, yes. far above the, the patient's head. And uh, of course, we're all going to struggle to make sense of these things. But nonetheless, that evidence is strikingly robust, even when you get rid of you know, many stories which are not reliable. Those ones where you can independently confirm this is factual uh, seem to have some uh, serious weight. Yes, the, the uh, near-death experiences, um, I mean, the, the reality is that they would be accepted in science as being uh, very well-established obviously true science that some people do have continuing experiences after cessation of brain activity um, uh, of a very specific nature. And the only reason that that's not accepted is because of the uh, materialist or even atheist bias of modern science, uh, because it, the evidence is, is compelling. I mean, it's, it's a, there's massive evidence for it. Um, and um, the, the only kind of evidence we don't yet have, and people are working on this, I have a I have a friend named Sam Parnia who's doing research on near-death experiences at NYU and is trying to solve this problem. But the only problem is that it's very hard to do pro prospective studies on near-death experiences. And prospective studies are sort of thought of as the gold standard for, for, for scientific studies. And obviously, a near-death experience is something that almost always happens in an unexpected situation. And there there's a panic and people are trying desperately to save someone's life. And so how do you prospectively study that? That's a difficult thing, uh, thing to do. Um, but the, the nature of the evidence right now is, um, is retrospective largely um, and relatively anecdotal, but it's absolutely massive. Uh, and there, there are probably at least 20% of near-death experiences are veridical, meaning that they can be checked uh, and the people have awareness of things during the time that brain function has stopped um, that they could not have been aware of by any normal physiological way. And, and, and even if there was some remnant of brain function going on, as you've pointed out, they know things that they could not physically see. There's, there's, there's serial, serial numbers hidden away or um, what's written on, on, on someone's back instead of someone's front while they're you know, providing care. There's a million different uh, examples of that. Um, one of the examples that, that, that fascinates me was one that was um, given by um, uh, Catherine Kubler-Ross, 
it was a psychiatrist um, from, I think she was in Switzerland, uh, who studied uh, death and dying, and, and, and was very famous for that. And she was, um, she reports in one of her books that she was um, on call in a hospital as a psychiatry consult, and a child came in from a car accident, very severely injured, and the child had had a cardiac arrest at the scene of the car accident, had been resuscitated, and was in the emergency room waiting to go into the operating room to have further surgery. So Ross went there to comfort the little girl. She was like 10 years old. And Ross um, uh, asked her, you know, what was your experience like? And the little girl said, well, when I had the accident, I found myself in this dark, dark room and going down a tunnel and there was a beautiful light. And I saw my mother and my sister there. And my mother and sister said, you, you can't come here now, but you will be coming. You, you'll be joining us soon. So uh, the little girl felt, came right back down the tunnel, and then she was was uh, resuscitated. So the child was taken into the operating room and died during the surgery. And Ross then checked, and she had a she she had a father and a brother and a sister and a mother who were with her in the car, and the sister and the mother had died at a different hospital, but the father and brother lived. So the little girl knew that her mother and sister had died from the near-death experience, although she had no way of knowing that otherwise. And they told her in the near-death experiences, you'll be, you'll be joining us soon. So, I mean, there, there's the, the near-death literature is full of things like that. So it's unequivocally real science, good science. Uh, and as I said, if, if it wasn't for the, the, the materialist bias in science, um, this would be accepted as, as, as a scientific fact. Yeah, and that's a good example of just the, the overall purpose of the book is to just call people's attention to as wide-ranging as possible examples of data and theories which are not being taken seriously by the, the mainstream, but actually have been developed with considerable rigor and, and really leaving it to them. Uh, there's many options on the table, but that we leave it to them to um, draw their own conclusions about what's uh, useful and plausible and what they might apply to their their work. And uh, having an open-minded perspective, well, we, we argue, will, would help them to uh, be better investigators. Yes, yes. The, uh, there's a chapter at the end of the book by Bill Dembski. Uh, entitled "How Information Realism Dissolves the Mind-Body Problem," and um, I'm I'm kind of trying to wade through it. Uh, it's, it's it's a very it's brilliant, uh, but there's a, there's a lot in it. Um, do you have any perspectives on that that could help me or to, or could or could help our audience about information realism? Well, Dembski's always been a kind of iconoclast who, who who's willing to say something that's. Uh, very different from everyone else, and, and therefore will cause you to rethink. And uh, what's interesting about the way he sets up his theory is, why don't we begin from something that we all know that's not one of the things that's in contention, and that is that there are all kinds of transactions of information going on into the world. And then we start out from there, and as we analyze the transmission of uh, information. So there's a there's a sing signal, there's something that sends the signal, there's something that receives it. We can then ask this metaphysical question uh, of what would make most sense of all of these informational 
transactions. And the beauty of that way of setting is up is it, it would seem to be a level playing field because physicalists are always talking about information being processed by the brain and dualists also, um, such as myself, talk about information that's going on. For example, when I uh, will my arm to move and my arm goes up, it seems as if that involves a transaction of uh, information going from a mental form to a, to a physical form so that you can start with his framework and then develop from there an open-minded understanding of what is the uh, best metaphysic to make sense of it all. Can we capture everything we know about the transmission of uh, information using a kind of a machine-like model? If we can, then materialism presumably wins. But what if we can't? What if there are reasons, and there are many chapters in the book that will look at this as well, for thinking that there are aspects of cognition that will not be captured by any kind of a machine? Then we're going to need something that's different to account for these um, these informational transactions. Very interesting. The one 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 question that I have, and I've I've been asking people this question for 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 a couple of decades now because I still have a little trouble wrapping my mind around it. Although I kind of know the dictionary definitions, but what is information in this context? Well, information can be understood in lots of different ways. So, as it was developed to understand um, signals. Um, you know, you you have, for example, measures of information like Shannon information, and you have other measures which try to understand it in terms of bits. But the the, the sort of intuitive idea is that um, information involves a reduction of um, possibilities. So when you ask somebody what they're doing, and if they say like a teenager stuff. Well, unfortunately, stuff doesn't actually exclude any possibilities, and so it doesn't con convey any information. But if, on the other hand, uh, they say, well, I'm going out to the store, well, okay, that gives you a bit more information. Or take something more concrete. If you're trying to figure out what cards somebody else has in their hand when you're playing cards, and maybe you're good at counting and you're trying to figure it out, and when they play a certain card, you say, okay, then I can figure out what those other cards are. Well, that reduces a huge number of possibilities, and therefore you just gain uh, a whole lot of uh, information. So I, I see that uh, what's really going on in the transfer of information is the reduction of possibilities. But there are indeed many different ways that it can be uh, measured. If you, if you have on um, Robert Marx, he's a specialist in this uh, area and can tell you about Chaitin Kolmogorov information, for example, and there are, there are many different ways of understanding it. Yeah, the, um, uh, in, in some sense, I, and I, I know that this, is, this plays a role in thermodynamics and, and, and uh, there, there are ways of looking at information uh, in terms of entropy. Uh, that information um, relates to the amount of entropy uh, in a uh, in a system, uh, and uh, basically that that a, a a low entropy state is a high information state because there there are it's it's a marked reduction of um, of uh, possibilities in the system. 
yeah so i've i've just always i i clearly information is a is is a is a fundamentally important thing in the world uh and um i've i've always wished that we had a, a more rigorous not i would say rigorous a, a, but a more unified definition of what it is um uh but it's a fascinating thing uh in in some ways it, it it's 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 analogous to uh to uh, energy that is that energy is such an important thing in everything we do and in, in science and everyday life but what really is energy and, and it's, it's it's a rather tricky question philosophically yeah it is and i think that this is a, a case where it, it is wise to investigate the phenomenon at first with the intuitive concepts that we have because if we settle too early on a specific definition that's drawn, for example, from the use of information in computer science, it might turn out that that's wholly inappropriate for understanding how the how the mind works. So I, I'm sort of I, I'm sort of always in favor of uh, in any area of philosophy. I think you should investigate the phenomenon on its own terms. So so what is language? Unlike the physicalist who wants to say, well, from the outside. You know, you're making certain sounds or you're making certain marks on a, on a page. Yeah, but we know what language is from the inside because we're language users. And it's the same issue with um, understanding the mind. We sort of know what it's, what it's like to gain some information by solving a problem in logic or making a decision where we weigh up various alternatives and then again, there's that reduction of possibilities. There were many things I can do. Now I find a decisive reason to do this one and not and not the others. Uh, so I, I, I tend to think we need to start with that intuitive idea and be open to persuasion as to which is the best sort of precise uh, model. I think you're exactly right. I, uh, it, it's interesting. I've, I've, as of late, become kind of a fan of Wittgenstein because he... He addresses issues like this, I, th I think, in, in, in very clear and very important ways. And I, his, his viewpoint on philosophy is that the, the, real, the real work of philosophy is to, is to clarify things, not to explain things. The, the work of philosophy is, is to learn to express ourselves as clearly as possible, in many ways as simply as possible. Uh, and um, the the final line in his tractus, which I think is one of the most beautiful lines ever written in uh, philosophy, where and I paraphrase um, that what we can say we can say clearly, uh, but what we cannot say we must pass over in silence. Uh, and it may be that in trying to define things, even to define the mind or to define information or energy or things like this, that our efforts to define it um, necessarily move us further away from really understanding what it is. Yeah, that's a, a great point. It parallels something uh, Chesterton said. He said that the uh, logician tries to f fit the heavens into his head, and it's his head that splits whereas the, the poet is content to put his head into the heavens. And so he's sort of saying that when we adopt reductionist models, um, and what we end up doing is try to force everything into that mold, 
and we'll we'll just end up falsifying the phenomenon. We should we should get as far as we can, and if we can see that something is there, we should acknowledge it's there, whether it fits our current theories or models uh, or not. And I think for many paradigms, the yeah the near death experiences or the the unity of consciousness are just like that. But we should never do is deny them because our model doesn't make sense of them. Um, are, are you acquainted at all with the work of Bennett and Hacker? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They. 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 They have for our listeners. They. 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 They're a neuroscientist, Bennett, and a philosopher, Hacker, um, who have published a number of books, including one of their most famous is the Philosophical Basis of Neuroscience. And I, I really love their their approach. There, there's a real strain of Wittgenstein in the, in their approach uh, that these reductionist um, materialist ways of, underst- of, 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 of of explaining neuroscience um, generally lead us much farther away from really understanding the uh, the uh, the uh, phenomenon, uh, and that there are phenomena that we just have. We just have thoughts. You don't have to explain it in terms of the chemicals and it's really not explainable in terms of chemicals they're they're the neurotransmitters are different things than thoughts and there can be correlations and correspondences between particular brain states and mind states but a mind state is not a brain state and vice versa um and uh, i i think the the approach they take is 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 a, is a very good one yeah and it's the it's rather like the approach of Brentano and Husserl, the, the great yeah. um, phenomenologists, and they did s- such incredible work exploring the nature of intentional states from within, just saying, well, look, these are given to us. What are they like? Without worrying about, oh, how can these fit within a modern scientific view? Forget that part of it. Let's first of all find out just what the phenomena really really are on their own terms yes. and i think that that's always valid to do and i you know i like some of the things in the the, the book on for example uh, there's a chapter in there on social psychology pointing out that social psychologists have to accept just to do their work a relational view of human beings which is utterly incompatible with materialism and the people who are doing this they may think of themselves as materialists, but it's simply that the nature of their study forces them to adopt a different paradigm. And once you've once you've had that thought, it makes you think, well, so why should I assume that I have to accept that paradigm in, in other areas? If it works, fine, but if it's not working, let's say in neuroscience, at least be open to the idea that there are very serious, um, competent, uh, neuroscientists who have found value in adopting a different perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I really enjoyed and in, in Bennett and Hacker the, the the comments that that they make in in in, in a number of places that in order for a, a neuroscientific perspective to be helpful and not in understanding some aspect of the mind, it's at it first just has to make sense, and there are things many things that neuroscientists say that simply don't make any sense like the 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 fallacy of like saying that the occipital lobe of the brain sees things um and where you know you could say we see things by virtue of the activity of the occipital lobe but there's no vision in the lobe itself Uh, you know the inside of the skull is dark you can't see anything there um and what they recommend which i think is 
vitally needed in neuroscience, probably more so than practically any other kind of science, is what they call conceptual hygiene. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's we 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 need to clean up our we need to clean up our concepts. Uh, there's a lot of work to do there. Yeah, no, that's a, a great point that they make. In other words, that we don't solve uh, difficult philosophical uh, problems by simply attributing mental qualities to different parts of the uh, of the brain right. right that's that's kind of a form of uh, cheating it's like oh what these neurons are doing now is they're thinking about lunch right right <laughs> right right yeah. and they, they 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 actually make a point that I, I thought was absolutely fascinating but it's so true um, they point out that even such a a common and 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 seemingly intuitively obvious thing that uh, that that our brain stores memories, or that we we, you know, we yeah. store memories. They say that that's that's just conceptually inexplicable. That is, that memories are not the kinds of things that can be stored. Yeah, you can't have a pocket of memories. You can't say, "Well, I've I've stored a lot of memories, but I'm reaching I'm, I'm reaching the capacity, so I'm going to have to get another memory storage area." That's not how memories work. Um, uh, you know, you you now some of that may come from the use of the word memory for a computer where information is stored on a computer and indeed that is a storage matter but memories themselves can't be stored it makes no sense to say that yeah that that's very interesting because you know they one here's the term you know engrams and the idea is that you know um, as you have studied something and you uh, memorize it then there are these traces left in the the brain but uh, although those those traces obviously um, play some kind of role when you recall something uh, later, it, it doesn't seem to make sense to say that they themselves are the memories because when you remember something, your memory is about something. So when you know Thomas Reed is remembering um, the Battle of the Col Culloden in the in the Highlands, um, well, um, what he's um, remembering there. Is, is, is some event that, that happened earlier in his uh, lifetime. That's what it's about. But the engram is not uh, about that. It's simply a, a physical trace in the, in, in the brain. So, yeah, that's a great, great example. Yeah, well, one of the ways I, I think about the engram memory issue is um, with the idea that an engram is, uh, is a map. Essentially, it's and, and engrams probably exist in one form or another in the brain, uh, although we we don't have a good handle on exactly how they exist. But there there probably are brain states that more or less correspond to memory states. But it's just a correspondence; it's not an identity. Uh, and um, a memory, uh, an engram is a map of a memory, but a map always presupposes that which it represents. So if I have a map of New York City, the map itself is not New York City. New York City is just what's represented in the map. So if, 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 if I ask a neuroscientist, what is a memory, and he points to an engram, he isn't explaining anything. He's simply pointing to something that correlates with the memory, but the memory remains unexplained. Right. And, and it's similar to... Um you know, Wilder Penfield's observation when he was doing his pioneering work, he concluded that while there are some things that you can make somebody do by uh, the stimulation of, of, of electrode, there are other things uh, that you cannot, or if you do make them do something, they will still distinguish it from their own action. 
And his his conclusion that the relationship of the mind to the brain um, is a bit like the relationship between the uh, reprogrammer of a of a computer and the the computer, because obviously we know that the brain is a highly dynamic system and all the evidence of neuroplasticity. But what is it that lays down these pathways in the in the first place? What is it that leads you to do one particular action when you're entertaining um, many possibilities? How is it that you end up changing the programming, as it were, uh, of the brain? It seems that that requires there to be a distinction between the the, the, the programmer and the and the uh, and the computer. It's it, it's kind of funny that that Penfield's observations, which which were fascinating and just you know earth shaking, have been completely ignored in neuroscience. Uh, that is that I've I've mentioned this notion that uh, what one question Penfield asked is why are there no mind seizures, and what I think what he meant by mind seizures really was sort of intellectual seizures, uh, no no seizures that involve kind of ab abstract thought and things like that. Um, and he pointed out that there are only four different kinds of um, of uh, neurological states that can be evoked by a seizure. There's uh, there's movement, there's perception, there's memory, and there's emotion. But there's never abstract thought. Like there are there are no calculus seizures. There are no uh, logic seizures. You know where we can't stop talking about modus pollens or something, or modus ponens. And Penfield said, this, that's really odd, that, that so much of what goes on in our mind is, is, has this abstract nature to it. But that never happens during a seizure. It's never evoked. So maybe, maybe that aspect of the mind doesn't come from the brain. And you would think that that would revolutionize the way neuroscientists understand the mind and brain, but it's basically been ignored. Yeah, the sad thing is in any area of science, and neuroscience seems to be no exception, is you get what Thomas Kuhn called the development of normal science within uh, a paradigm. And people say, well, we'll, we'll accept these default assumptions and do our investigations within them. But the pioneers in all of these areas, what's so interesting, the real giants, because they're thinking about the foundations of their discipline, they do step back and they are willing to ask these these questions are some are there some things here that really don't fit what i expected and they're more willing to accept that those phenomena are real right it's kind of funny i've i've mentioned to to some friends who are neuroscientists these particular viewpoints and they're basically kind of informally open to them they think it's interesting but you can tell in their eyes as I'm talking to them that they're uh, that they're thinking, if I ever said this publicly, it would be the end of my career. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. that they'd be thought of as crazy, uh, even though it's solid neuroscience, it's very good neuroscience. It's just there are certain things in neuroscience that you don't say out loud. Yeah, and and you know, scientific progress though, in the end, seems to depend on people who are willing to be the the gadfly like Socrates and and kind of stand outside. Right. The accepted views, you know, in the class I'm doing now with with Gödel, I mean, he had to go against a whole slew of mathematicians that were absolutely convinced that you could reduce all mathematics to logic and you could make mathematics purely mechanical, right? And right. Russell um, and Whitehead, yeah. yeah, yeah, and these are all very smart people, but yeah. because he accepted um, something that was transcendent, because um, you know, Gödel in this case was a um, a mathematical um, 
Platonist, he wasn't convinced that truth could ever be reduced to something that we can uh, compute. That was his, his gut feeling. And so then he went about investigating, well, can you find examples of things like this? And I think that's a sort of a salutary thing for any scientist who is in love with a particular model or a theory. Are you, as Karl Popper would advise, looking for the things that don't fit? Because that's where the, 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 the progress and the new understanding is going to come. Sure, sure. The problem is to push the uh, Socrates analogy a little further. Uh, <laughs> that that um, there's always somebody waiting with a cup of hemlock. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yes. uh, so, so uh, it's it's why I think a lot of um, a lot of these penetrating ideas are are made by either very well established scientists who don't have a lot to fear, or retired scientists. <laughs> so. Uh, well, at least hopefully that they've got nothing to fear from just uh, reading a reading a book in the comfort of their of their own home. And, it's a uh, great book to read. It's a uh, great book to read, and, and we won't tell anybody if people read it. Okay, so it's, it's, it's just our little <laughs> secret. Um, so uh, this is Mike Egner. I've had the uh, great pleasure of uh, having a wonderful conversation with uh, Angus Manunge, and. Um, uh, Angus is the editor of a great book called Minding the Brain, Models of the Mind, Information, and Empirical Science, recently published by the Discovery Press. Um, I'm reading it for pleasure because it's such a great book, and I encourage every everyone to get it. Uh, it goes into the kind of fascinating stuff that we've been talking about here in great detail, and it's highly readable. Uh, so thank you, Angus, for joining us, and uh, this is Mike Egner for Mind Matters News. Thank you very much, Mike. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.